Okay, uh, speaking from the Centre for Study of Globalisation and Regionalisation, speaking on a new challenge for global environmental governance. Thanks. Now, this work actually was prepared before the hodgepodge in Copenhagen, and it stems from two research activities that I was involved in. One was with the Africa Progress Panel, a Geneva-based uh, think tank that was working very closely with African leaders in the preparation for Copenhagen. The second is my relationship with the Center for International Governance Innovation in Waterloo, in Canada, which involved preparation for a unique event in Kampala, which was also linked to climate change in Africa. I say unique because um, the Kampala event in October, last October, involved uh, the participation of about 300 school children and university students. And this is important because it emphasized the relevance of the intergenerational challenges of climate change. And it was a deliberate attempt to bring in young people because of the fact that we're talking about securing the future. Um, my presentation actually focuses on the governance dimension. And this stems from concern about the fact that existing arrangements and instruments had not adequately addressed the di development dimensions of climate change. In my view, I think in particular, the issue of poverty was not addressed. I decided therefore to adopt an international political economy approach and look at the existing arrangements for incorporating or integrating climate change into a wider global framework, governance framework, in which poverty and development issues can be addressed. Now, the purpose of the paper was essentially to present the framework, both conceptual as well as some practical guidelines for coming up with such an integrated approach and to argue for integration from the point of view of dealing with uh, a global governance approach that would be applicable in particular to the threats that developing countries and especially those in sub-Saharan Africa face in relation to the impact of climate change. It is important to stress that for the developing countries and particularly sub-Saharan Africa, the issue of climate change was not essentially that of what was emphasized in previous instruments and arrangements, i.e. the mitigation aspect in, in terms of um, looking at the scientific evidence, the scientific basis. Most of the work that has been done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Geneva-based um, organization that provides the evidence to support uh, action with regard to mitigation and adaptation, did not address the concerns of the developing countries, and particularly sub-Saharan Africa, simply because the data and information that were needed were just not available in the case of many African countries. Some of these countries did not even maintain regular records on weather and climate conditions and changes in these conditions. Some of them could not even maintain uh, a weather gauge on a, on a basis that would ensure that these records were available. 
So the whole picture was rather distorted or rigged against the uh, sub-Saharan African countries in terms of the evidence or the scientific basis on which most of the action and, and, and debate on climate change were based. I chose to focus instead on what I consider to be the current and contemporary consequences of climate change on developing countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And this is quite clear because we know that there is ample evidence of the effects of climate change through droughts, through uh, disasters, natural disasters, coastal floods. Um, and I will also indicate the channels through which these affect human development. Therefore, I felt that it was important to have a framework in which human development was central to the debate on climate change, particularly if we want to address issues pertaining to developing countries. I therefore try to come up with some pathways through which climate change impacts on human development. And to run through quickly, I identified about five. One obviously was the, the link with poverty and inequality, particularly in terms of the vulnerability of populations in sub-Saharan Africa. And the second um, is through the spread of infectious diseases. I've done some work on the link between HIV AIDS and climate change. And, and it's quite clear that um, even with respect to incidence of malaria, I'm told that places that were previously not um, malaria prone because of uh, the relative cool or the altitude are now being affected by malaria because of global warming. And obviously food insecurity is the third pathway. And then population displacement and forced migration, as well as competition for natural resources, particularly water, and I mean clean and portable water. I, in the course of my work, I also looked at some historical precedent in which um, it became quite clear that the majority of humanitarian disasters were climate-related. And uh, predictions for the future in terms of sub-Saharan Africa was that and millions of Africans, for example, will be faced with um, water insecurity in the next two or three decades. And this itself could be critical and could actually create uh, uh, the risk of conflict due to competition for scarce resources. Um, I then looked at the sort of efforts that we need to integrate climate change and human development in a common framework. And I believe that in the context of the existing global governance system, it is important to take into account on the one hand the concern of nation states, for example, in the area of health. Nation states have been particularly concerned about their sovereignty and the need to ensure that the they are not constrained by external pressures or that their capacity to address certain problems are not uh, compromised by their obligations to international institutions and international, and, and international treaties. And as a result, it became quite clear that some of the preparations for Copenhagen indicated a sort of tug of war between the sovereign responsibilities 
that are entrusted to the state on the one hand and the external obligations of the state to meet these international obligations. I also thought that it would be relevant to look at the framework for addressing the development dimensions of climate change in relation to the arrangements that had been put in place for this to happen. And at the time, before Copenhagen, I felt that Copenhagen would provide the basis to unite the world behind a common position for avoiding climate change-linked environmental catastrophe and humanitarian disasters. It was also expected or hoped that Copenhagen would provide the right type of political and institutional support for improved and more equitable governance of global environmental concerns. Of course, as we all know, the outcome has been rather disappointing. And um, the never, despite the fact that Sub-Saharan Africa underwent a substantial process of preparation for Copenhagen in the sense that they worked within the framework of the African Union, the Economic Commission for Africa. They collaborated with um, institutions such as the Africa uh, Partnership Forum and agreed on a common position and to have a single spokesperson at Copenhagen. This itself was a significant improvement in previous uh, involvement of Africa in global negotiations pertaining to climate change. And the expectations, therefore, were significant and uh, were much greater than, than in previous occasions, and uh, particularly from the point of view of adaptation. It was felt that adaptation should not be confined to just providing assistance for, the ad for, for adopting um, new clean technology and energy to support a greener program, but particularly to address the contemporary impact of, of climate change on development and the fact that climate change is already contributing to a worsening of development indicators, human development indicators, as well as contributing to the difficulty of addressing the, pro the situation of poverty. I attempted to come up with some suggestions regarding global governance innovations that would be relevant to integrating development and poverty reduction considerations into a common framework for addressing climate change. And in this regard, I looked at both the institutional system as well as the governance arrangement at international levels as well as at national levels. Innovations in governance obviously meant that the whole issue of the relationship between the North and the South should be revisited or should be reconsidered in terms of the balance of power between the two groups, particularly when, when one takes into account that the in, in terms of climate change, the big polluters or the big emitters are the ones who are least affected by the impact of climate change. This has been the 
moral basis for the argument by sub-Saharan African countries that they are the ones who are most affected and yet they are the ones who have contributed the least to the problem and therefore one has to take that into account in any mechanisms to address issues relating to adaptation. And the, these key policy issues relate to a number of concerns which unfortunately were not adequately dealt with in Copenhagen because of the situation that emerged. But I'll run through them briefly because they constitute the, what I consider to be the contemporary challenge that includes both the global priority in terms of development issues such as poverty, food insecurity, and health. I also feel that um, the climate change governance agenda should be promoting a proactive <laughs> adaptation response as a priority rather than being reactive and focusing essentially on mitigation. I give example of this in my slide, and I think it is important to stress that perhaps involvement of local, uh, at the local level and participation of the local population could create a better framework for understanding the challenges and the responsibility of developing countries with respect to the contributing to the objectives of climate change as was envisaged in the Copenhagen conference. I also stressed the fact that um, there needs to be investment in sustainable development, climate, resilience, building effort. And this, again, is an issue which has not been addressed adequately in the existing arrangements of global governance. And the last point I made was with regard to the moral implications in terms of the imbalances between those that pollute and those that the most and those that are affected the most by the effects of this pollution. Now, after Copenhagen, I thought I would quickly take stock of what came out of Copenhagen and the relevance for sub-Saharan Africa. Basically, of course, the outcome, I think, by all accounts, was rather disappointing in the sense that the summit did not result in an agenda of action as had been hoped for. In fact, what we, what we ended up with was a last-minute sort of political compromise involving a few key players, and uh, the legitimacy of this is quite questionable. There were no binding agreements regarding emission reductions, technology transfer, or climate finance. Um, there was little or no impact on the key concern of the world's poor and their struggle to secure a decent and sustainable future. In fact, um, at best, I would say that Copenhagen provided indication of how to move forward, but also it, it, it yielded a lesson on how not to go about to organize a global negotiation on a major global concern, a global threat. The limitations of the negotiations, the limitation of the politicians, and the limitations of mega-conferences to address issues of climate change were aptly um, came out of the, the, of, of, of the exercise in Copenhagen. It was quite clear that if we want to look for solutions or impetus for solutions, we need to probably look at other quarters 
And although on balance, um, Africa felt that at least its concerns were noted, if not acted upon, the African Union welcomed the accord, but they were very cautious because they have gone through a, a period or a history of broken promises. Um, I refer to the amount of money in terms of promise rather than firm commitment, and the fact that there, were, there was some reference to funding arrangements with a governance structure providing equal representation of developed and developing countries. But it was quite clear that um, the implementation of this arrangement itself was not concretized, and it was quite clear that it would take some time before something concrete would emerge. In conclusion, I feel that climate change and human development, I know that climate change and human development are interlinked, and I think this point should be the basis for the participation of Sub-Saharan Africa in any future arrangements regarding the governance of climate change. The interaction of the pathways which I've mentioned should also be researched, analyzed, and become the basis for policy and action programs. And finally, I think there's a need for an acknowledgement by all parties concerned about the collective responsibility or the need to adopt a global public goods approach to the innovations in governance structures and policies that are needed to achieve greater equity and social justice for all concerned. And I think, I believe that popular participation in decision making at national and local levels would complement this process at the global level. Thank you.